you know, in the long run, you're going to see people reinventing essentially every single grocery vertical for the people that happen to really care about that vertical. And so that's that's sort of like our long-term vision is we're going to be sort of connecting those sellers to you in a way that is a lot more durable and consistent than a subscription. Back to going deep with Aaron Watson. I am really excited about today's episode with Michael Meyer. Michael is the co-founder and CEO of a company called Bottomless. I've been a customer of Bottomless and think that it is both a fascinating company, an interesting product, and a very likely revolutionary model for thinking about commerce. As you'll hear in this interview, Michael has been tinkering with the company idea for more than four years. He has taken it through Y Combinator and has seen some really exciting growth over the last year as it starts to catch on. But in this conversation, we also talk about the business strategy, his lessons learned from Y Combinator, and why a slower form of e-commerce is crucial not only for lowering the price of the goods that we buy every single day, week, and month, but also for reducing the environmental impact of those things on our world. This is a powerful idea. Pay close attention. Here is Michael Meyer. You're listening to Going Deep with Aaron Watson. Mike, thanks for coming on the podcast, man. I'm excited to be talking with you. Hey, I'm excited to be on. This is just perfect uh, timing, alignment of the stars. I got an email this morning, 5.03 a.m. Your fresh coffee has been ordered. Ethiopia, Costa Gate, I'm going to say it wrong, Costa Geishi is going to be coming to my house here in the next couple of days. And the reason that that's occurring is I have a Wi-Fi connected scale in my kitchen and on it sits my bag of coffee and it is being monitored so that when it hits some threshold for uh, low weight, it triggers an automatic order of my coffee to, to be delivered here. You are the, the, the man, the founder, the CEO behind the firm that makes that happen. So maybe we can start off by just what did I miss out of the explanation of the service offering and uh, where did the initial idea start to come from? Okay, so I mean, it, it is fairly simple. You set up this Wi-Fi scale once. Uh, it lasts for a year on a single charge and you just store your coffee on top and then you just get more uh, coffee in the mail whenever you need it. Basically, we just fixed the e-commerce subscription um, starting with coffee. I guess another piece of the puzzle for the listening audience is that we, we don't try to market this scale device. To you, we essentially market you coffee, we sell you coffee, and the scale just sort of comes with the coffee. So we're, we're taking a different approach than um, the few other sort of like automatic reordering concepts that have been tried in the past. Where did the idea come from? You know, my, my co-founder and I, we definitely did not sit there thinking, you know, how can we make the most kick-ass coffee subscription ever? Like that that was not the genesis. Um, we, we basically were sitting there and, um, you know, Every time we went to the grocery store, we would forget something important. Um, and so it started with this germ of an idea of like, why am I buying the same stuff over and over from my house manually? You know, if the seller knew how much I had and how fast I was going through it, like they could just ship it to me. Um, and, you know, at the same time, I had signed up for a Soylent subscription. I don't know if everyone knows what Soylent is. It's basically like a 
you know, you can think of it as like a protein powder thing. And like, I had so much piled up that I could have survived an apocalypse. And, uh, you know, I canceled it. And then eventually I ran out of it after like, you know, six months later, sort of like realizing, okay, well, the reason why I don't have everything set up to automatically ship to me is like the best service model for that right now, a subscription doesn't work at all. So we sort of just had this thought experiment. What would it look like? What would a service look like that actually sent to me at the right time? We sort of had an epiphany one day that, um, you know, weight is a really good source of truth and you could sort of over time figure out consumption patterns. Um, it was such a crazy concept to be perfectly honest. And, um, you know, I really wondered if, uh, if there was a, a good reason why nobody had tried this before, but we just went ahead and tried it anyway, it seemed to work. Uh, and here we are. And if we talk about those subscriptions, you know, there's been some subscriptions forever. People would subscribe to the news, uh, newspaper and it was, you know, a novel piece of paper delivered to your doorstep every single day. But in the, the digital age, there was this new idea. And I don't even know if it was necessarily connected to that, but there was either the, the Harry's, you know, razor subscription, or there was like the, the box, like your quarterly box or your monthly box. And suffice to say that those were relative to this arrangement dumb because they don't have that actual feedback in any real way once the box gets in your home or once the package gets in your home, other than that it's been delivered. Like that's where the, the kind of uh, wall of, of data stops being collected. And so the fact that you can establish a beachhead effectively in your customers' homes collecting this data, and that that's a that's a brand positioning thing, that it, there's a lot that kind of goes into that. That's a hardware device there's so many different things is really uh, from my vantage point the kind of core insight and the and the the primary proposition where eventually this isn't just a coffee company this is another company that kind of as you're talking about like uh forgetting things at the grocery stores replacing these disposable goods that to some degree rely on freshness that people order with regularity yeah i mean the general concept is you know there's a lot of stuff that you have in your house you know you might be like in particular, we're starting with coffee because uh, it's something that's not very good from the grocery store, right? So the best products for bottomless in the future are going to be the type of products that you really want to get straight from the producer, right? And we have this whole grocery store supply chain just to get things really close to you. Um, and it's very limiting in terms of freshness, but also selection, um, quality. Um, there's many, many things that are limited by that sort of gating factor of only having a couple slots on a shelf and also needing products to be able to last for a long time and also, um, you know, really address a large market. Um, so, you know, right now you see in the D2C e-commerce um, space, like a lot of different companies popping up out of nowhere, selling all kinds of different things you never would have imagined. Like when I started this business, I never thought um, anyone would buy cereal D2C because it's just, you know, costs like $3 a box. Like, how are you going to get that shipped to you? Um, and since we started Bottomless, we're seeing all these companies doing these like specialty cereal concepts. And so my theory is that, you know, in the long run, you're going to see people reinventing essentially every single grocery vertical for the people that happen to really care about that vertical. And so that's that's sort of like our long-term vision is we're going to be sort of connecting those sellers to you in a way that is a lot more durable and consistent than a subscription. And it also, you're not necessarily holding inventory. You need inventory of the scales, but really you're the connective tissue between these specialty uh, coffee roasters. Like you don't need to build the expertise in, in roasting. You need to build the 
um, stable of demand for the coffee or whatever the future product might be, and then basically play that connective tissue. You're almost like a drop shipper of coffee, so to speak. Yeah, exactly. And um, you know, the interesting thing is we sort of flatten the world of coffee. Right. You know, it used to be if you were a small roaster in the middle of nowhere, you could not address the whole United States market. I mean, you could do a really good job of marketing and get your subscription going, but, you know, subscriptions really do not retain people very well. And so you're really stuck to your like local grocery stores or opening coffee shops, you know, and this is a real world example right now. Our number one uh, roaster by volume is out of Billings, Montana, and he's a one man operation and he's He's beating out these huge companies in, uh, you know, San Francisco and New York um, that have a huge staff. On, and he just has better coffee and is more consistent at shipping. So, you know, it it definitely flattens the world. There's a story here about being able to address a bigger market from a smaller sort of like existing uh, footprint. Right on. So let's talk about that monitoring and the algorithm. So like another thing I can do is I can go to your website and it has this like data screen of my weight day by day of, of, of the coffee grounds. And to, you know, s- someone not giving it a ton of thought, never having to actually get hands on with it, it seems relatively like, okay, we know that below six ounces is time to ship. But like, I'm sure there's a lot more complexity to it than that. Can you talk a yeah. little bit about, you know, outside of just the monitoring of the weight, like what else is going on behind the scenes that informs when that coffee gets shipped? Yeah. I mean, like as a company, we're kind of like a duck. Everything looks really simple and smooth above the surface, but underneath we're paddling like hell to figure it all out. Um, You know, like all the roasters have their, their own sort of like fulfillment performances. Um, There's the postal service has different performance for different parts of the country and different distances. And then every user has their own sort of consumption pattern. And so we do a lot to sort of combine all of that information to get you your coffee at the right time. It's definitely not like if you hit six ounces, we're going to order for you. You can imagine that you might drink a bag every month, in which case it'd be really early when you're halfway through, you know, and your, your next door neighbor might drink a bag every week, in which case we need to be ordering fairly quickly, you know, probably earlier than six ounces. So yeah, we have a lot of sort of like magic hidden behind the scenes. And that gets easier as you guys get more customers and more data feeding in to kind of see what works and what doesn't. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, the more cases we have of us ordering and seeing if the, if the coffee arrives at the right time, the, the better we can get, you know, the, the more we can improve our algorithms and, and also, you know, just sort of, um, what, what would you call it? Like anecdotal improvements from customers reaching out and saying, Hey, this isn't really working for me. Um, and finding those like sharp edges of this sort of like service model, because we really are fundamentally doing something unique and new here. You can't just like drop in a JavaScript or Python library and just do this. Um, You you know, you can't install a Shopify extension uh, for bottomless right now. So we we really are discovering all of these sharp edges all the time and and continuously improving. So one of, I, I, I think that that causes all sorts of headaches that you do have to kind of solve these problems from the ground up and you can't go to some repository, but at the same time, it's your edge and that you don't have a ton of competition and you are getting to learn this stuff right on the ground. I'm curious about uh, how you got from 750 customers to 6,000 customers in a single year, because at this, on one end of the spectrum, I love this. Like I'm not someone I'm I'm relatively minimalist. I don't, I don't spend a lot of money. I kind of, you know, I've got my routines and all this stuff. And I found myself talking to friends about 
my coffee subscription service. <laughs> and I'm like, like I never spend time talking with them about things that I buy. So on one yeah. end of the spectrum, it, it seems highly referable, but at the same time, there's probably concerns about like, you know, who's monitoring me. Like I, 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 we don't have Amazon echoes. We don't have like, you know, big tech cameras set up in my home so they can watch me. So there is like a, you know, the other end of the spectrum that might make people uneasy having this type right. of stuff monitored. Yeah. It's, it's really interesting. I mean, you know, a lot of the state of the art right now for automatic restocking is vision based. You know, you see Amazon go and you see that there's a YC company, I think standard cognition and very early on, I said, you know, this started from this concept of how do you do reordering? We thought about all these different form factors of cameras originally of how to mount cameras in home. And, you know, we would not have been comfortable with that ourselves. Um, I don't want a camera in the home. I don't really trust a company to tell me that they're not actually looking at the cameras. Um, and so one of the beauties Same. of what we're doing is honestly, like, do you really care if the whole world knows your coffee level? You know, it's, it's like, I mean, I personally don't like if my coffee level, you know, God forbid, if there's some sort of horrible leak and somebody could figure out my coffee level, I probably wouldn't lose very much sleep over it. So, you know, people's addresses are probably a lot more um, sensitive than even the coffee level. And that's just like traditional normal e-commerce. So that's kind of cool. I mean, it, people do have to trust that, uh, that we don't have anything else in the, in the little black box than a, a weight sensor. But, you know, people can take those things apart if they want. And, you know, if we had a secret uh, listening device, people would know by now. So um, essentially, it's like a really low invasion way to figure out when to reorder for you, in my opinion. I believe there was a second part of your question not focused on the the monitoring aspect. Yeah, just just the growth and the the fact yeah. that, you know, like like the way it was perfectly framed up, you referenced Y Combinator here, Paul Graham, the founder of Y Combinator, you know, retweeted the the whatever public disclosure of going from 750 to 6,000 customers. And, and these are recurring customers. That's kind of the presumption baked into the business model. And he goes, I, you know, I previously would have went meh, 6,000 customers, but this is an 8X in one year, which is, you know, when, when people talk about growth rates, pretty exciting if you extrapolate it even a little bit. So, so what is... How is that occurring? What What is the the driver, the impetus behind that from your vantage point? Yeah, we got to meet Paul, actually. We we went through Y Combinator um, and a certain number of companies uh, have uh, office hours with him. And uh, he was one of the fastest people to sort of intuit what we were doing. What he said, like immediately was like, wow, this is streaming for stuff, uh, which I think is, you know, such a, such a great way to conceptualize what we're doing. But in, in terms of the growth, you know, our retention is dramatically better than a normal subscription. And so when you play that out, each person is a potential promoter, right? And if you have five times as many customers after nine months or whatever, you really have five times as many promoters. And if it's something fundamentally unique in somebody's lives, you know, it's not very often you get a new product that really feels magical. And so it really is something that prompts a lot of word of mouth, even though I do think in the future, this is going to be a utility, right? So like... You know, right now, if you order something online from Amazon and it shows up at your house, you're not going to tell all your friends, holy crap, I made an order on the internet and it just showed up. But originally, you know, you order a book and it shows up, you're going to be telling everybody you ever met because it feels like magic. So I think there's definitely a similar thing here um, where this is just a fundamentally new service. And since, since so many people stick, there's more promoters. And since it's something magical, they tell their friends about it. So that's really been driving a lot of our growth. You know, we do a little bit of paid ads on top, but probably fewer than a typical 
uh, like subscription company has grown this much just because uh, we really don't have to acquire so many customers to, to keep our customer base um, consistent and growing, I guess. Yeah. And, and there's also a degree to which, you know, this is any product, but particularly something like coffee, it's very hard to be able to make like a, a broad statement or proclamation about the purchase that you're making. I mean, maybe you're holding the Starbucks cup or maybe you're holding the Duncan cup and that tells other people something about you and how you want to be understood. But otherwise you're making it, you know, at home in your kitchen away from other people. And unless someone is visiting and you're like making coffee for them and you're showing them like, I, I you know, this is a spe special blend and a grounded bean and blah, blah, blah. It's very hard to like get the, the status games that we all want to play as humans injected mm -hmm. into it. And so by being, and, and I'm just, I'm, you know, being transparent in my own experience of talking about this, but it, it is this way of like, Hey, I found this new thing. I'm a very discerning consumer. Like, let me tell you something about myself and simultaneously something about the product. Yeah, for sure. I, I think that's a good insight. And, um, you know, that's something that. Frankly, if you have any ideas of uh, how to, to make bottomless something more of a signaling good, um, I'm all ears. You know, right now we basically just focus on delivering the product as best we can. Um, you know, and then we've built, you know, a couple ways like customers that have been with us for a while have a heat map that they can share, stuff like that. But right now we're just sort of banking on the concept itself to carry us, which it, it seems to be doing an okay job. Yeah. I'd imagine that at the very least, like some sort of reward program for your, your 20th bag or what have you, that's like a bottomless mug to, would remind me a lot of the morning brew because they have their referral system. And, and it's probably also be tied into the referral system that you guys have, but the ability to get something for referring, like, you know, it's small and tangible and could just be sent anyways in the box or the, the shipment that you're already making. But you know, doing that in forms of swag that other people would be like proud to represent. Like I have a little sticker on my, my laptop, but other things that like, you know, the new thing came in and, you know, here's my bottomless mug with my new bag of coffee. Seems like a relative no brainer. Yeah, no, I love that. We do have these mugs, by the way. Oh, I haven't seen those yet. Very nice. Yeah. This is not going to translate on audio, <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's uh it's, it's definitely a good idea. Right now, we basically have um, like shirts or mugs that we give out as referral bonuses. So we're doing a little bit of that, but I, I sort of wonder what else we can do. Um, you know, free coffee forever if you get a bottomless face tattoo, maybe. <laughs> yeah, um, we'll, we'll see how many, how many of those convert. The Going Deep podcast is underwritten by Piper Creative. Shooting, editing, and publishing quality content is overwhelming. We make it easy so you can save time, build your brand, and grow faster. Say hello at pipercreative.co. So, so let's talk about the, the future of something like this, because, you know, to, to even get into Y Combinator, but also just, just, you know, candidly from the way that you've talked about this company in the past, or even comparing yourself to an Amazon versus comparing yourself to, you know, Joe's Diner down the street implies an audaciousness, implies a potentiality that frankly, most people don't even you know, bake into their company or, or spend the time to pursue. So when, when you look further, you know, years down the line, what do you see, if you're talking about it being utility, like what kind of world do you envision this being underpinning? You know, there's this interesting thing where I, I feel like building a multi-billion dollar company is only like five times harder than building a successful restaurant down the street, you know? So, uh, you know, being crazily ambitious actually has really high ROI. 
you know, it's, it's better in a sense to be a tech investor because you get to diversify um, than to actually be the entrepreneur. But um, it's, it's, it's definitely fun. Um, you know, one thing is like, I feel a lot, I feel a lot of people, you know, they get into the VC backed startup industry without fully understanding and internalizing what it means to do a VC backed startup, right? Like when you take venture capital money, they're banking on one company having like a 30x return. So you kind of have to be terrifyingly ambitious by definition if this is the type of the way you want to fund your company and the way you want to grow your company. So I would just say that from the baseline that, you know, we almost are terrifyingly ambitious as a result of the way in which we're building this company. Um, but we are, we're also, you know, we also sort of like we're terrifyingly ambitious from the beginning. And that's sort of like, so there's, there's sort of like a, um, a co-evolutionary thing about ambition and, and, um, and way of building a company that can, that can sort of like build off of itself. But, you know, I, I think from the beginning, we've sort of recognized that this, that when you make a whole new service model, there really is a lot of explosive potential. And, you know, the reason why we picked this idea amongst like dozens of other uh, startup ideas that we had um, was just that, you know, there's really no limiting factor to growing a company like this. You know, it's something brand new. It's kind of hard to do. It's going to be a little bit hard to copy, at least in the beginning. And, you know, a, a huge portion of the global economy is like repeatedly purchased goods. So it would be crazy for us to not be um, insanely ambitious with this sort of um, this sort of solution that we're working on, I guess. Yeah. I think what would be super educational, but also just like kind of an insight into how you think about building something like this is maybe over the last two years, or maybe just from the inception of the company, if you could like almost sequentially go through the different constraints that you've hmm. faced. So like yeah. one of the presumptions is, you know, there, there's there's never enough time uh, to do all the things that you want to do if you're that really audacious, have that audacious ambition. But otherwise, you know, sometimes you run into the constraint of capital. Sometimes you run into the constraint of people or technical expertise, what have you. So can you kind of like talk through those sequence of obstacles and constraints and kind of maybe a little bit of how you overcame them? Sometimes it's going to be obvious if it's just like, you know, the check from Y Combinator. Um, okay. So before even starting the company, the biggest constraint was probably ego and fear. Nobody really talks about this. They, they sort of assume that it's a high status thing to do a company, but it absolutely was not. You know, I was, I was working as a developer, making a good salary, and um, to sort of quit that and uh, start a company with no track record doing companies sort of automatically put me into a much lower status level. You know, when you have no customers, no funding, and you're a single person doing, you know, the, the only full-time person working on a company, it, you know, people sort of put you in the same bucket as somebody who's unemployed. Um, so first of all, you have to be willing to take the status hits and um, not really care about what people think about you. So I would say that was the initial constraint. Um, I was lucky enough to, to have, uh, you know, my co-founder who funded the company um, from, from her salary and also sort of was involved from the beginning, um, definitely, definitely helped make it easier um, to start the company. And uh, frankly, if it was just me by myself, maybe I would have never done it. So that sort of removed some of the very initial funding constraints. Although, you know, I would say, um, you know, I lived on less than a minimum wage salary for the first at least year of doing the company. And so that's another thing that a lot of people may um, find to be a constraint in the beginning. Then, you know, in the very beginning, the biggest constraint was, can I even build an initial pilot for this? 
And it sounds crazy. People probably don't think about that, but like I was a JavaScript developer. Like I had no business making hardware or like honestly, even like servers or database architecture or uh, marketing pages or doing marketing or, or you know, 95% of the stuff that we did at Bottomless um, to get the initial pilot off the ground. And, um, you know, nobody's going to give you money if you go in and say, hey, I have this genius idea to put coffee on scales and reorder. Like you really have to prove that it works and you can build it. So definitely just that was sort of a deficit that we had, but, you know, I was able to figure it out and build out the initial pilot. And so I wouldn't say that was actually a gating factor. That was sort of like a um, a potential gating factor that didn't turn out to be a big problem. And what I would say is, you know, it's surprising what you can figure out using the internet. You know, all of these things I was able to figure out, even making a hardware device, I was able to actually figure out how to do the whole thing just by Googling, just as w- using the same mentality um, that I would have taken doing a front-end JavaScript thing, you know, looking it up on the internet and like looking up examples. Um, you can just sort of take that exact same philosophy and apply it to like pretty much anything, which is pretty cool. Okay, so then we had the initial pilot running. We got like 15 customers using the device. You know, a lot of people also don't know this part of the story. After that, when I had 15 customers, I felt that uh, I had proved that it was working. Like of those 15, using very janky stuff that I had hacked together out of an apartment, um, you know, 10 of those people bought coffee for like a very long time. Uh, And like, we're buying almost as much coffee in like month 12 as they were buying in month one. And so I thought, hey, we've really proved this out now. Like this actually does work. You know, if you actually look at the sample size, like 10 out of 15, uh, and look at like the confidence interval, like, you know, that there's like a 99.9% chance this is better than a subscription, which would be like two or three people out of 15. So then I went out and tried to fundraise and nobody wanted to give me money, you know? So that was a lesson that I had to learn, which is that investors do not see the same thing that you see every day. All they see is you talking to them for an hour or more honestly, like 30 minutes twice, if you, if you're lucky to impress them enough in the first call. So um, you can tell them that, Hey, these 15 customers are all real and all this data is real and this thing really works, but that isn't enough. You actually have to prove it. And so there was a little bit of like a gut wrenching period of bottomless life where I had quit my job, sort of bootstrapped this with my partner funding it. And then I had proven that it would work sort of like beyond all odds, building out the first version. And then Nobody gave us money yet. I was sitting there and I knew that this worked really well um, because I knew that all, all the customers were real and I hadn't like pressured them to use the product and, and they weren't like secretly my friends or, you know what I mean? Um, your mom and, and your aunts or something. Yeah, exactly. Well, I, I got like five people that were my friends originally, but I didn't even include them in the data, you know, and then I got 15 people that I didn't know online. But so there was this gut wrenching moment. It's like, do I keep doing this? Very, what this thing that appears to be extremely low status and feels extremely low status um, and low pay, you know, and do we keep, does my partner keep funding this? So also like a big decision for her to really get this to the point where investors are going to actually take this seriously. I remember going on several long walks and just discussing like, hey, this works so well, do we keep doing this? And we just did it. We decided to do it. It took us another, I think, year after that failed initial fundraising to get up to something like 150 customers. 
Uh, and we did all kinds of crazy stuff. Like we bought two 3D printers and put them in a closet and just had them running constantly to crank out like 3D prints of the scale and like, uh, you know, turned the apartment into like an assembly line factory. And, you know, I listened to the entire history of Rome podcast, which is like 150 episodes, like three times, just building, building scales and just doing all this crazy unscalable stuff. But then once we had about 150 customers, you know, we went out to fundraise again and the evidence was just undeniable and we were able to get our first pre-seed funding. So up until that point, manpower and funding was the biggest constraint, right? So this is kind of a good question. I'm sorry, I'm, I'm, I'm going on, but I, I can continue. So after that- no. I love it. That's that's exactly what we're looking for is, is the way this stuff pieces together. Because, yeah. you know, people who have never done something like this, never built something like this, they, there's the like the mistake of, well, there's this one breakthrough and then it'll yeah. all go. Or like this one, there isn't one, there, there are moments, but they have to be strung together over a long period of time with yeah. each little breakthrough kind of giving you the, the, the key to unlock the door, which takes you into the next room, which has another locked door. And so that's kind of, it's a really helpful model to hear you talk through this. And it's probably, you know, a trip down memory lane as well. Yeah. I mean, there were two, there were basically two holy shit moments and neither of them actually resulted in real world uh, progress for the business externally until way later. You know, the first holy shit moment was when I hacked together the first one of these and it was terrible. I hand, I had to hand deliver it because I didn't believe it would like survive the mail. And, um, you, you know, it, the person set it up in their house and like, then I started seeing the data and I saw it go down, down, down. And like, I bought a coffee for them online on like some Shopify store, right? That's like what I did in the beginning to test this out. And then the right. first holy shit moment was seeing their weight jump up. You know, and they put the new bag on. Yeah. I was like, holy crap. <laughs> like <laughs> it actually worked. And then, you know, the next, the next holy shit moment was those 15 initial customers, like looking at the retention and like spinning up a graph and seeing how much coffee we were selling, like after they had been on for like six months, that was just like a mind blowing moment. But again, it didn't translate to any real world, you know, real world benchmarks. In a sense, like when you read fundraising announcements or you hear about people having success in, in a startup, it's a real trailing indicator of the progress that they've made. Makes sense. So after the the, the funding and also kind of just validation co-signing, like even being in Y Combinator immediately, like I know that happens here in Pittsburgh is if any company here has been, has sniffed Y Combinator, they're all of a sudden way more relevant to the relatively small angel network and other investors here in town. So, so what did that do? And then what became the kind of new constraints? Yeah. Um, so we raised the uh, pre-seed, like a pre-seed round uh, right before we went into Y Combinator, but yeah, what can I say? Um, you know, an interesting thing happened when you go through Y Combinator and you raise some money, you, you know, your idea goes from like this insane thing um, that nobody believes to like an inevitability almost. Um, you know, so the, the narrative around the company very quickly shifted from like, I don't like, this is crazy to like, wow, this company is doing something really innovative. So, you know, what was the constraint? You know, first I can, I can say a note on Y Combinator. People sort of assume getting into Y Combinator means that your company is going to be a success. But in fact, you know, it's like a wild dash, you know, you get into Y Combinator and you need to make this insane amount of progress in order to sort of rise to the, to the top of the pack, or at least, you know, you don't need to be in the top, but you maybe need to be in the top 25 percentile to sort of come out of YC with enough momentum to raise significant follow-on capital. So, you know, during, from the moment we got into YC until we raised our post YC money, um, the only constraint was just 
the personal energy and time of my co-founder and I. And at that point, she had joined full-time after our pre-seed capital. So before we got into YC. So, you know, the biggest constraint by far was just like how much energy can we pour into it? And I think we averaged something like eight or 9% weekly growth during that time. And we were still using like 3D printed hacked together hardware. Um, so that was just an insane that was an insane period of time where uh, we were just like waking up and working nonstop and um, trying to keep up with the pace. And, you know, basically it's a, it's a, it's a, why, why Combinator is a bit of a competition, even though it's, that's not frequently acknowledged. And so just, just sort of trying to, to prove this and, and take advantage of the opportunity. Then after, uh, you know, after we went through YC, we, and had grown, we were able to raise a decent amount of money. I would say the constraint after we raised that money was essentially hiring was a big constraint. Hardware was also a big constraint because we had been sort of like hacking together this hardware manually. And you know that can you can scale that to a thousand customers, but you can't scale it to 10,000. So we had to really build out like a real manufacturable product. And then we also, you know, we couldn't do it just the two of us anymore either. Again, you can get a company up to a thousand with two people, but not to 10,000. So just hiring people for an early stage startup can be a bit of a puzzle. And so, yeah, that's been, that was like the year after we got into YC was finding the right people to work with us and getting a manufactured product. You know, we went to Shenzhen, China. We met a guy there that was great. He now works with us full time and actually helps us produce our hardware and improve it. So, yeah. And then um, I don't know what the constraint is now. You know, the constraint is just uh, keeping the machine running. As you grow as a company, it's like, um, you know, you, you don't grow linearly, like the, the complexity doesn't grow linearly with size. It's like the surface area of a balloon or something. You're pushing out this frontier, more and more complexity. So it's just sort of like managing the chaos and riding what sort of feels like a bucking bronco, I guess. And I would imagine also like from a, a decision-making or prioritization standpoint, it becomes, in addition to that complexity, just the list of potential priorities, the list of potential focuses. So like, you know, one of the obvious questions is it's a coffee company right now, the same way Amazon started as a book company and they start to diversify out of that. And it becomes that balancing act of, you know, do we just deepen, do, do we add to our bench of, you know, coffee roasters that we partner with and market exclusively as this, or do we, you know, start to branch off into different directions and that can't be an easy call. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, it's one of those things where, um, you know, I feel like we could double our valuation immediately if we, uh, if we were selling more things, um, you know, because investors don't want to invest in a coffee company, I guess, you know, they want to invest in the next Amazon. And so, you know, it always is a temptation for us, right, to start selling the next stuff. And, and frankly, like we didn't start, I should be, I don't want to trash the coffee business because it's actually pretty awesome uh, that people can get freshly roasted coffee, you know, shipped to them straight from the roaster. Um, but, you know, it is a temptation always to do more things. I think what we, our perspective is really like, do we think that what we're doing right now is as good as it can be, you know, and, and I don't, I don't think it is. You know, we still have the flavor of an early stage company in a lot of ways and an early stage product. And I think, you know, we're only halfway there to, to really fleshing this out and um, doing the best we could be doing. And, and so we, we, we just keep that as our North Star. And, you know, since we're talking a lot about business strategy on this podcast, I would just say that, you know, there's an element of like the person with the most amount of customers is going to win the game, you know, and, and we want people to experience this sort of service model with us. 
you know? And so the, the more people we can get trying this service model out, um, the better it's going to be for our company. And it doesn't really matter if they buy two things from us, five things from us, or one thing for them to really trust Bottomless as like the best service provider in what I think is going to be a very huge market in the long run. So we really want to get as many people on board as we can before we sort of distract ourselves. And we want to give them the best experience that we can too. So, you know, that's really our North Star. Yeah, that makes a ton of sense. It's the probably hardest task, but it is also the the long-term most beneficial because I know I'd be tickled if there was like, you know, one other thing that I could potentially not have to think about ever ordering ever again, but that'll be there in years to come. Yeah, no, for sure. And, and uh, you know, it's just, it'll be that much more impactful, you know? If we have a hundred times more customers, it's going to be so much more impactful for so many more people once we actually decide to do that. And it also seems, so So there's a, a nonprofit here in Pittsburgh that's focused on food waste. So you basically have this issue of, you know, stuff has to be shipped from the farm or wherever to the grocery store and then picked up at the grocery store and brought home. And if it even is, you know, the, the smallest inkling of, you know, being past uh, due or, or a little rotten or whatever, uh, it gets let go. But then there's also just people that like won't, you know, take home a yellow banana, they'll only take home a green banana because they want it to ripen once they get it home. And their basic thing is they take it from the grocery store and then they deliver it directly to food banks and, and other people with food insecurity as a kind of solution to almost a thing that's like fun. It's, it's fundamentally broken if you take it back to the source of the issue in the way that you'd be addressing. So I would imagine that the opportunity and this is like you know when you start you know pitching a bigger fund one day like that's also part of it like from a, like a sustainability standpoint finding these things that can just be a fundamentally better experience if the supply chain and the logistics of its delivery to the end consumer becomes more efficient yeah i mean that's exactly right um the, you know the fundamental illegibility of consumer demand drives a lot of inefficiencies in in the market um you know like there, you know, you can think of like tons of examples, but like the whole, the whole reason like grocery stores have to have like really stale stuff is because the supply chain needs to be like there for you to pull at any moment. You know, um, they're not able to sort of know your demand in advance and push it to you more slowly. So I, I think, you know, when it comes to efficiency and, um, you know, even like climate change in, in the long run um, and the efficiency of distributing goods, this sort of solution, I think, is going to make a really good impact because, um, you know, slow shipping has to be like two or three times less resource intensive than fast shipping. Like you think about um, like DoorDash and, you know, they have an individual person driving to you your burrito and then <laughs> delivering it to you with one guy. Like if they knew you're going to have a burrito three days in advance, they could literally make the burrito in an extremely efficient manner in like, you know, on an assembly line and then slowly get it to you and like, deliver all the burritos to your neighborhood at once, right? And so that's, you know, without going into too much detail, there's the, the sky's sort of the limit in terms of making things cheaper and more efficient with this sort of technology uh, for the consumer and, and for the world. So that's another thing we're excited about. I think that's kind of like the coolest thing about doing this company is like, you know, we can go down so many rabbit holes um, about the impact of, of something like this. And it's because, you know, we're making something really important available to the internet. You know, like when smartphones came out, they made all of these things, all these important pieces of information available to the internet, like your location, you know, 
just the visual surrounding around you, like being able to take photos and then that translates into Instagram and QR codes and all sorts of stuff. So, um, you know, we don't have the advantage of a whole new computing platform coming up for us, but, you know, we sort of created our own by making these scales and putting them out there and getting this one really important piece of information and just fundamentally making it available to the internet. So that's, that's something that really excites us. And, and I think um, just the basic level, like I hope that we can succeed at least to the point where this sort of technology proliferates through the economy and in like uh, commercial settings and industrial settings and, you know, for your, for your bananas and, you know, all sorts of stuff is, is, is really the dream. Um, and whether it's us or somebody else, like, I, I think it's going to be a dramatic improvement. I'm rooting for you. Um, I'm going to keep ordering and, and drinking the coffee. And I've got my list here. I, I don't know if you want to go, maybe this is, you know, taking the eye off the ball here, but I had like a couple different items and I wanted to see if you would give them a grade for the likelihood or the ease at which they could be converted to this model. Because I'm sure that there's, there's functions of like, you know, things that people actually do care about. Like you were kind of surprised by the D to C serial things that they do care about. And that from like a actual shipping standpoint would be a disaster or not a disaster. So the, the first one was eggs. I think that fresh eggs, like what I found out was like, you know, these eggs are treated so that they can sit safely on the shelf versus some egg that was laid within the last couple of days by a chicken that could be delivered directly to your home. So if you were to start maybe with the grade for egg delivery via bottomless, if I had a little um, <laughs> scale underneath my eggs, what do you think of that? Well, that's a fun one because you, you, you can sort of think about reinventing the whole egg supply chain, right? Um, you know, when you travel internationally, they don't actually refrigerate eggs. Yeah. Right. Uh, and, and so I still remember like seeing eggs like out in a, in a supermarket, like in China, at least. Um, and I was just terrified, like I wouldn't eat those eggs, but, um, you know, it's, it has to do with the processing, right? Like, so, um, American industry processes eggs in a certain way such that it actually lasts longer in the fridge. But if you don't process it that way, um, it, it'll last a really long time unrefrigerated. So, I don't know. Eggs could actually work pretty well, right? Like how much is a dozen eggs, like four or five bucks. If you really, really care about eggs, you might be willing to pay more for like really good fresh eggs. So I think, I think I could see it. Yeah. Definitely not, definitely not the next one though. That no. would take a little bit more, <laughs> more stuff built up. The, the egg delivery safely would be the biggest variable there. Um, and then like a milk. science project. It gets yeah. me excited because I think it'd be really fun to like, to design like a USPS mailer for eggs. Milk is harder because it's a very low price point. You know, you kind of have to figure out things that people that cost enough. Coffee is a beautiful thing because, um, you know, it's sort of concentrated. It gets, it gets diffused into water. So in, in, in a sense, it's like a chem, it's like a concentrated thing already. So, it, you know, a $15 bag of coffee is actually not that expensive on a per cup level. Like it's like 50 cents per cup. So, um, milk, milk is one of those ones where we would have to figure out how to batch it with other items, uh, which, you know, it's really something we could do in the long run, but yeah, another, I would expect that in 2030. Word. And then cereal was actually at the top of my list. So it's funny that you came up with D to C cereal here on the, on your own. I used to tell, like, you know, if you go back and you find somebody that I pitched in like the pre-seed or even the failed pre-pre-seed round for bottomless, you know, I would have told them, we'll probably never do cereal. Right. And, and I was wrong. So, you know, all of these verticals that you can ask me about, like somebody's going to figure out how to do it. You know, bottomless really is a new way to like connect 
buyers and sellers of repeat stuff. And I, I think the world hasn't really understood that yet. And so, you know, somebody will, somebody will figure it out for the people that actually care about it. There are going to be enough weirdos that care about pretty much anything uh, that they'll want to get it in the mail. It's almost like the byline of the internet. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it is. I mean, that's the original Amazon thesis, right? Like yeah. what kind of weirdos are going to buy things online and like, oh, okay, books. Sure. Like books is a books. People are going to buy that online because, you know, there's a big assortment that you can't get in a bookstore, but nobody's going to buy a microwave online. And now I bet like half microwaves are sold online. Yeah, totally. Mike, this. This has been awesome. I want to aim towards wrapping up and asking our standard last two questions. Uh, but before I do that, anything else you're hoping to share today that I didn't give you a chance to? I don't think so. No, I, I, I can't think of I, No, I can't think of anything. Um, I can't think of any agenda other than just talking and prof, uh, you know, uh, preaching the word of bottomless. I think I've been doing that this whole time. So this has served me nicely. Wonderful. So for the folks that are converted, what digital coordinates can we provide them to learn more, follow along and try it out? Well, we're at bottomless.com. We also have the bottomless handle on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. If you want to follow me personally, I'm on Twitter at um, M-I-C-J-M. M- I know it's not the best handle ever. M-I-C-J-M. Uh, you can just search Michael Mayer. I, I don't think I'm the most famous Michael Mayer, but you can scroll down until you find me. Right on. Uh, I'm going to link that in the show notes. It'll be easy for everyone uh, to find. How hard was it to get the bottomless URL and uh, handles? Oh, that's a great, that's a great question. You know, I haven't talked much about my co-founder in this, but you know, I'm, I'm sort of like head in the clouds type of guy, you know, okay. I'm always coming up with different thoughts and uh, usually they're terrible, but sometimes they're very good. And, and she's just sort of like the get, get stuff done, incredible executor type. So we just decided we wanted to get the bottomless.com handle and we didn't have a lot of money and she somehow pulled it off. It's, it's, it's pretty nuts. Um, you know, I, I don't know if I want to divulge her tactics, but she, she made it happen. <laughs> Damn. Yeah. I, uh, I have a, a friend with a potentially similar story that I'll share with you once we're off the recording here, but uh, that'll all be linked, like I said, in the show notes. And uh, before we let Mike go, we're going to give him the mic one final time to issue an actionable personal challenge to the audience. Um, okay. So, you know, one, one piece of the bottom of the story that I didn't really talk about is, um, you know, I have some pseudonymous like Twitter accounts that are followed by a lot of people in Silicon Valley. And that, that sort of helped me bootstrap a network to be able to fundraise. And, you know, people always ask me, like, how do you come up with things to post? Like, how, how, how do you have insights? And I always tell them, like, I'm not some sort of super advanced algorithm. Like, my, I'm not that smart. I really focus heavily on curating my informational inputs. So, and a lot of that is pruning. So, you know, during this last election, anyone who post, posted more than once a day about politics, I just unfollowed them. Um, so I would say like the, um, you know, some political stuff is good, so don't worry. But, um, you know, anything that you come across in your social feed or in your just typical information consumption that you think to yourself, this can't possibly be a building block for thought for me. Like, I can't see this piece of information being a good premise in some argument in my head that I'm going to build, um, just cut it because it's not adding any value to your life. And there is in the modern world, like an infinite plethora of information sources. So it's not scarce. 
So the actionable thing I would say is the next time you look at your Facebook feed, Instagram feed, Twitter feed, maybe less Instagram, because I'm not sure, you know, watching somebody eating a burrito or something is going <laughs> to be a great input for thought. But, it, you know, if you aspire to be, you know, a thinker in any way, just unfollow any, any, anything that isn't going to be a good building block for you. Yeah. I would say if, if you're going to do Instagram, curate artists, the, the art on oh, there can be, can be staggering and it's, it's not the exact same type of intellectual stimulation, but it is definitely going to take you in a better direction than a lot of the other stuff on there. Oh, sure. And that might be a good tip for me because, uh, you know, bottomless is at an interesting point right now where we have to start developing our visual identity and brands. And, uh, you know, I, I feel really clueless about that sometimes. And so maybe I just don't have enough, um, input of high quality aesthetics. So Maybe, yeah. maybe I'll, I'll go and set up my Instagram follow artist. Maybe you can send me a couple. Uh, I'm happy to, but I can tell you as, as someone whose business partner is much more aesthetically cha- uh, talented than me, it's also a great thing to just find someone else who has that, that competency uh, blessed to them. But I'm, I'm totally with you. Unfollow, uh, use the mute function on Twitter as much as possible for um, the, the thoughtless stuff and uh, sign up for bottomless. Yeah. Sign up for bottomless, be a part of the feature. Uh, Mike, thanks so much for coming on the podcast, man. I really enjoyed talking with you. Thanks, Aaron. This was a blast. Hey, I really hope you enjoyed that interview with Michael. If you found it interesting and you want to try the product, there's a link in the show notes for this episode for you to get your first bag of coffee free from bottomless. You can find it in the show notes here. Uh, It is very easy to cancel if it is if it turns out to be something that you're not interested in, but if you're a coffee lover like me, they have a fantastic selection. It is definitely upped my coffee game and it will do the same for you. This is not a paid endorsement. It is just a product and a model that clearly I am a big believer in. And I think you will be as well once you try it. Check it out and hit subscribe if this is your first time listening because we have a ton of other great interviews coming down the pipe, including next week's with Pete DeComo. And, you know, one of the one of the unique uh, characteristics of startups, especially um, life sciences startups, is that when you're in the business of innovation, uh, you don't know what you don't know. Uh, and a wise old man told me one time, um, you don't know, you know, if you don't know what you don't know, but you don't know that you're in real trouble. Thanks for listening. Connect with Aaron on Twitter and Instagram at AaronWatson59.